0: This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Hello, welcome back to Black and White, a rallying place where we come together to learn and hold everyone gently to account. A podcast for the ally in all of us. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. My guest today is Orlando Bowen, sought-after international keynote speaker focused on equipping people to get off the sidelines and become difference makers on their teams and in the lives of those around them. He's also passionate about youth leadership. As a result of his passion, he's founded One Voice One Team Youth Leadership Organization that's really focused on inspiring and teaching resilience, leadership, teamwork to youth. A man of many talents, a mutual friend of ours. introduced us, Ron Tyke, shout out. Orlando, I'm so excited we could finally make it today. You're a busy guy flying all over the world. Thanks for making the time. Welcome to Black and White.
1: Steven, this has been such a long time coming, man. I'm so it's such an honor to be in a shared space with you as you continue to pour out into community and, and hold space uh, for, so that people can be held gently to account love that love that let's go
0: the honor is mine so let's go you know i always like to go right back to the beginning and for you the beginning was in montego bay jamaica everything B I R. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about uh tell me about jamaica i've been going to jamaica for almost 30 years good friends family i'm an honorary jamaican but mm-hmm. tell me about your family in montego bay jamaica and uh how you got to canada
1: awesome love that so i will Tell you exactly how everything did start. Um, <laughs> so I was born, I was born in Montego Bay, Jamaica. Uh, still have a lot of family um, there and, um, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins, uh, friends, uh, you know, and, and uh, I, I left Jamaica when I was three and uh, moved to Toronto, Canada, grew up uh, in inner city, Toronto, and uh my wife and I have three boys and we we were very deliberate in wanting to go back and touch the rock or the home base every other year at least. So we were doing that up until, you know, recently. So it's it's always been like a, such a special place, man. You know, when every time I go back and I have the gift of being able to interact with young people and family members and uh, just to be out in, in community, you know, it's such uh, to see, there's such resilience, there's such beauty, the food. Yes, man. <laughs> like there's so many things to be grateful for. And when I think about uh, the fact that I had the opportunity to come to North America for for an education and for vocational opportunities, I feel very blessed. I feel very blessed to be a Jamaican And very blessed to be able to do what I can to represent. And, um, you know, sometimes when I see some of the struggles that folks are experiencing right now, it it heightens um, my awareness around uh, how blessed we are and um, the need to do something with the blessings that we've been given. Absolutely. We never take it for granted.
0: Well, one of the things I, I say to my friends, I, I've taken many of my friends to Jamaica, and I've told many more about Jamaica. But one of the things that always amazes me about that little island of two and a half million plus is, you know, I say to people, "Do you know music that comes from Jamaica?" They say, "Well, yes, reggae." Uh, Do you know food that comes from Jamaica? They said, "Well, yes, jerk chicken, Jamaican patties." Do you know uh, athletes that come from Jamaica? Of course, right? So, and and so on, right? Do you know a religion that comes from, <laughs> from Jamaica? Rastafara, right? It's amazing the creativity, the innovation, the resilience of Jamaican people. And they've immigrated to all these countries. And I think Canada is one that's benefited. So I think, in, and added to the richness of Canada. So one thing I was gonna ask you, and you know, you've been back and forth, but what was it like growing up as a black? Kid in Canada, you talked about the inner city. What was that like for you?
1: Yeah, well, it was, um, you know, there were challenging times uh, for sure. As new immigrants, as you could imagine, and and as many folks, many of the listeners know, we didn't have much in terms of resources or connections per se. And so the neighborhoods that we uh, were in were, you know, government subsidized. Our parents were working really hard in order to keep a roof over our heads, and uh, while you know. My mom was working full-time, while being a student full-time, studying nursing. My dad had multiple jobs. And um, so it was a struggle, you know? And there was a lot of uh, like wraparound type of uh, encouragement and support. So I spent a lot of time, my grandparents, um, because my parents were working so hard to try to um, keep a roof over our head and food on the table and opportunities, to, to be able to present opportunities for us. So I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and my uncle Henry, and they were also in a, a like a government subsidized housing situation. And in those communities, you know, sometimes there wasn't a lot that was expected of us in terms of how we what came out of those communities. Sometimes people would say, you know, they'd be engaging and endearing. And then they say, so where are you from? And you say, and they're like, oh, you're from, that neighborhood okay <laughs> right yeah. and so there was that that you felt you didn't feel it when you're in community because all of us were like we were like the same same experiences but when we stepped outside our community there was a real sense of it's us it's really us that's within the community as a, you know as a family and people look at us differently so there were pros and cons to that obviously powerful bonds and connections made but we also would look at and we would also anticipate that people are going to be looking at us differently and anticipate that people wouldn't expect much from us because of the lived experiences of some of the older heads, we would call them, those that are, they are you know, a couple of steps ahead of us. Um, so we, we we learned a lot and, you know, the community taught us a lot.
0: Well, that's, uh, it's, it's interesting. The, not only the, for example, in education, the streaming of uh, black and people of color and indigenous into non-academic because there's not really expectation or, uh, the way that BIPOC children are treated differently in regards to, well, maybe, you know, there's no, traditionally no expectation and right. maybe not enough encouragement. Yeah and as you know orlando these things persist yeah. right things are changing right so now you're you're in this community you've got your brothers and sisters you've got your family your broader village right it takes a village But you're navigating, you're being a kid, you're growing up, and at some point growing up, you start having a love of football and sports. So tell me about what that did for you and how you came into football.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Now, sport was always, in terms of being in community, the things we gathered around, rallied around, food, (laughs) sports, music, fashion. You know, so sport was like we were always playing games when we were outside. We made up games, right, to, to play just to stay active. And I was introduced to more formal sports once I started playing soccer. Uh, that was my first sport. You know, it was uh, an interesting journey, too, because my parents would always say, be mindful of the friends you keep, right? Watch those. Don't just hang out with anybody and I remember there's a young man that used to always get in trouble in our neighborhood. He'd be getting dropped off by uh police after school sometimes. And I I remember thinking that must be I guess that's who my parents are talking about. Right. And uh <laughs> one sure? one day um my we were getting ready to go to soccer practice. So we get in the, get in the car. I'm sitting in the back seat and my dad says, Oh hold on, we have to pick up one more of your uh a new teammates. So I was like, okay, cool. Guess who it was? Young man who always would get out of the police cars. I was so confused, Stephen. <laughs> I was like, hold on. How is he coming into the car? Maybe my dad doesn't know that he gets dropped off by, right? So I was just like, I, I thought you said not to hang around folks that get in trouble. Um, but uh, what I realized a number of years later when that I saw that young, we were then like in our late teens, early 20s. And that young man came up to me and he said, "You know, when we were growing up, your dad was one of the only people that that believed in me, in mm-hmm. community, and he gave me a chance." Amazing. You, you know, but but things like that, like in the moment, they didn't necessarily make sense. But in hindsight, the dots definitely connect. So I started playing organized sport um, when I was around nine or ten, um, playing soccer. When we moved out of the city, moved to one of the suburbs, Brampton, I started playing football when I got to high school. And um, that was a blessing. The first time they had me out there, it was cold and wet. It was raining. After soccer, I I found a love for basketball. It was something my uncle Henry was into. um, And I found a real passion for it. So I was constantly playing basketball. And they said, oh, you know, you're kind of big. Your shoulders are kind of broad. You should try football. And so I said, sure, I'll try And then I went out there. Stephen, it was, again, it was cold. It was raining. I was like, hold on what do you guys do if it snows? And they're like, oh, we play. Of course. I, said, well, I don't know about this, man. I'm, I'm an island guy. Feel me? Like I have island <laughs> blood in me. So I, I don't know if I could do that. And they said, just give it a chance. And they put me on defense. And they said, you know how you lock down guys. You, you like to play defense in basketball. I said, yeah. They said, well, that is their number one receiver. Do not let him catch the ball. But if he catches it, tackle him. So, you know, I, I did my thing. He didn't catch the ball. Then he caught it one time and I tackled him. And I said, yes, sir, I could do this game right here. And that was the the genesis of me getting involved in football.
0: You fell in love with the game. Yes, absolutely. Amazing. Amazing. So, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, expectations. And so you finish high school and... Obviously, you know, you're, you talked about your mother who was working hard and going to school at the same time to be a nurse. So education is important in your family. And so you envision going to university. So how did that come about and where did you go? And tell us a little bit about that.
1: Thank you for that. One of the things that I found to be strange at the time was that my dad was the one that was harping education. You have to get your education. It's the one thing they can't take from you. And, um... What I realized was that my dad only had a fifth grade education. So I'm like, hold on, why is he so... Because the thing was, no matter what I did in sport, Stephen, my dad didn't care. Like, he's like, yeah, that's good. But w- <laughs> what about your marks? I'm like, you know, my grades are good. Good, that's not good enough. I get a 95. What happened to the other five? You know, like, he was always yeah. like... You you could do you could do better, right? And then I was just like, well, so hold on, what? And I didn't ask why he only had a fifth grade education. But I found out later that you know when he was in the fifth grade and his my uh, grandmother was about to give birth, and during the birthing process, um, you know there were some complications, and uh, my uncle was born, but my grandmother passed away. And when my grandmother passed, uh, my grandfather had a difficult time. Coming home to the place that his bride no longer was, so after a while, he stopped going home and he left my dad and the newborn and their two older siblings to kind of figure life out on their own so
0: my God my
1: dad dropped out of school in the fifth grade to take care of his br- baby brother, and he never went back and There were times where he would be sitting in interviews here in North America, and people would ask a question, and as he started to th- to talk, he had a very thick jamaican accent and he told me of a time where someone stopped him as he was responding and he's i said you know what it's okay you don't have to say another word because you'll never get a good job in this country man you can't even speak english properly what and um that you know that for my dad was a moment where i think it was triggering and galvanizing for him in terms of i never want my kids to experience that and, and that's where the drive and the energy around education came from. So I ended up getting a football scholarship to attend Northern Illinois University, just outside of Chicago. And I was you know, determined to graduate, determined to study hard, wanted to do well on the football field. And um, so I, you know, I played all four years that I was there. And I graduated a couple times at an undergrad in marketing, a master's in information technology and started working as an IT consultant. I learned a lot about life and about myself and about possibilities along that journey uh, at Northern Illinois University.
0: And so this is interesting because I I want to, I'm curious about this. So you're in Canada, you know, we tout our multiculturalism in this country. It's a, it's a badge of honor. I've got something more to say about that a little later, but now you're, you go to the United States, you're in Chicago, which is actually, you know, there's a lot of black people in Chicago, but it's also a very segregated city. So as a Canadian, a black Canadian going to the U S and now you're, let's face it, Chicago's can be a tough town. Of course, you're going to a very good university. You're perhaps a little sheltered in that community, but overall, what did you what did you perceive to be the same, different, what was that experience like?
1: Well, you know, I, I mentioned the older heads uh, or the, the more seasoned youth in the communities that I grew up in, in in Toronto. One of the things that I was blessed by was that type of mentorship as soon as I got to campus at Northern Illinois. So I remember we had a day off, which was kind of rare. We, we were doing 2 days and, and, you know, um, summer camp, you know, training camp, sorry, trying to get ready, for, getting ready for the season. And we had a day where one of the seniors, he was actually a grad student. He said, let me take you to the city, you know, cause we were about 50 minutes outside of, of, of the city. So he drove me through Chicago, South Side, West Side, Downtown, and, and I was just like, he's just like, tell me what you see. So you would see, you know, diversity, like you'd see there were communities, right? So there it is like, there are a lot of black folks in the city of Chicago, Latinx community in the city of Chicago, white folks in the city of Chicago. But the city seemed very like segregated, you know, whereas where I grew up, it was like brown folks and white folks and black folks. and. You know and it was just like that's just your class that's just who you know is in your space but what i saw was like there'd be communities where or places that we were driving it was all black people and then you cross over a certain intersection and you see a sprinkling of black people and it's all that next (laughs) folks and then you cross over another intersection and it's like the downtown core where it's majority white folks and i was just I was like, wow, this is so fascinating. What, like, why is it like that? And he, so we started having deeper conversations and, and we were talking about gentrification and you'd see young people, like kids playing outside, outside of buildings that part of the building, the windows and doors were boarded up. So I was like, hold on. Oh, are they just playing in front of a random building? So he's, you know, he, he said, no, they actually, there's people living in those buildings. It's just that, uh, what's happening is they're letting it the buildings get to a place where it's uninhabitable and um once it it's deemed as such then they, they get to tear it down and build up mixed of uh, course of economic, course it's like uh,
0: a, once they make it its blight then they can knock it down and then right uh build anew and rent it for higher prices. Exactly,
1: exactly. So so we were talking through all of that and that that the whole thing was just eye opening to me because you go from like just what you know is like what you've been exposed to, right? And, you you know, you'd like to think that, you know, we've we've come a long way and there's certain things that don't happen, you know, things like redlining and other, um, you know, systems and, and activities within systems that create opportunity for some and take opportunities away for others. And it was just, re- it was a real eye-opening experience for me that way. So... Love the city of Chicago. Beautiful city. Um, I
0: spent a lot of time in Chicago. It's a, it's a beautiful city, but like many cities, including Toronto. Yeah. Again, we talk about multiculturalism. There's people from, I think I read, there's something like uh, 140 languages spoken if you walk down the street, mm-hmm. right? But if you look at the economic demographics of, of the city and where people live, it's actually still divided for the most part by race, by economics that are tied to race. Right. So all to say that I think we have made progress in our society. But what I'm trying to through this podcast and talking to amazing guests like yourself is to try to bring some information and say, you know, we're talking about you going to school in, in the early 2000s, but now we're 2022. And some of the stuff is still happening. It's still real today. Right. So th- this is probably the most important thing, because as we're talking about reform of systems to get rid of systemic inequality and racism, we're actually talking about data that is real today. Yes. Right? Yeah. So hearing your experience and, and those of others, it just makes it more real, I think, for people. Yes,
1: yeah. And and I feel like our personal reference points are snapshots in time, And they're like, snapshots of our perspective at the time that we were journeying through this particular moment in our lives. And it's easy, I think, to kind of look at things in isolation. You know, my wife and I talk about this often. Like sometimes you see challenges and and you'll say, well, you know, people around us might say, well, that's just one person or that's just one Officer, or that's just one principle, and what gets missed? We we talk about it, and I forget which uh, author had referenced this, but it's like if you look at it as an isolated incident, an anomaly of sorts, then you miss the fact that that incident, if you think of it like as a star in the sky, and you're looking at it like, wow, I can't believe that star, you miss that the star is actually part of a constellation, right? Uh, where there are systems of those things operating and some of them operate overtly and many of them operate under the surface and are operating on us without us really being conscious of that happening. So once you start to see it though, and once you start to see it, you then start seeing it in different spaces and uh, it becomes difficult to unsee. And I think even if you think about some of the things that have happened over the last few years, namely George Floyd's murder, uh, for many people, that was like, that was like, oh my gosh! It was like this awakening. Like blinders came off, and people then started to see uh, the impact of systems that are that oppress and marginalize people
0: exactly and it's tragic that a murder of a black man is what was required obviously one murder in in a chain of many others as we know uh but i think the again looking at the positive of it is that it did bring a a level of awareness this global reckoning that really we haven't experienced in many ways since the civil rights movement of the 60s in the United States. And so I think that that's a good thing. And it's really started bigger conversations, deeper conversations, more reflection, more understanding. And really, that's kind of the reason I wrote my book, Black and White, was to get deeper and to be really an explainer book, right? It's like, you know, I was surprised through my research that So many, especially white people, were unaware of many of these things. Like you said, no, no, I'm not just talking about that one star. I'm talking about many stars, right? And connecting those dots, if you will, for people. And I think we kind of came to this critical mass. So now we're, you know, 2022, it's two plus years later. Let me ask you this question. What was the impact of the George Floyd murder on you? And what do you see as been the impact in terms of tangible impacts? You're out there meeting with thousands and thousands of people. What was the impact on you? And what do you think the impact on the people you've touched?
1: Well, the impact on me, it was was personal, you know, uh, aspects of some of the things that we've journeyed through in terms of being assaulted uh, by police.
0: This is actually, we got to rewind a little bit here. Okay. Let's go back to Chicago because this is such a a huge story. Let's go back. You started your career. You're working in an organization, a company in Chicago. You get a phone call. Someone says, you should come back to Canada and play professional football. So tell us how that started. And then you come back to Canada and then we'll talk about what happened.
1: Cool. No worries. So I was happy, sort of, (laughs) with what I had accomplished today because I felt like, you know, when I finished my post-grad degree and I, you know, I had like really an opportunity to do whatever I wanted to do from an IT perspective. You know, I took a job in Chicago as a consultant because it would give me a lot of different opportunities and I was excited about that. My parents were happy and um, I felt like, okay, I'm doing something with my life. And I remember there being an incident that had happened that, you know, two young men were recruiting like a a five-year-old to be in their crew or, or what have you and, and asked him to steal some things and he didn't. And they said, don't worry about it. And they took him back to their apartment building and up to the 14th floor and they threw him out the window. And um, this happened in the Ida B. Wells housing project. Um, and those projects were home to one of my teammates, Michael Newman. And I remember Mike saying to me, man, like, they don't even care about us. And I'm saying, like, what are you talking about? And he said, on the news, there was just a blip about this young man's life. And the rest of the time, they were talking about, you know, like what the Kardashians are doing and all these things that really, in the grand scheme of things, who cares, right? So I remember saying to him, well, well what are we going to do? Because we care. We're, we have to do something. So we started to put together a mentorship program for young people in the inner city. Michael Newman is still doing that to this day. And so as we were doing that, though, I got a call from the Toronto Argonauts and they invited me back to Canada. So my mind was wired to say and to think, how can I serve? Because in my job as, this, as an IT consultant, how can I serve? How can I bring hope? How, how can I bring perspective?
0: You're always connecting those dots, really. That's yes. a driving force inside you, for sure.
1: Yeah. So when the call came in, naturally, that's how I my thinking was also. How can I use this opportunity to serve? Uh, So that was the question that I asked. If I make this team, can I serve in community? And, uh, you know, the gentleman on the call said, if you make this team, you and I will go serve in community. So I said, "Okay." Amazing. So I took a leave of absence from work and I came back to Canada and immediately got involved in service. And I've been serving ever since, you know, just plugging away and trying to do different things because I didn't know Steven, like what the thing was going to be where I was like, yes, this is it for me. This is exactly what I want to do. So I did a number of different things from working with sick kids to building houses with Habitat for Humanity for folks didn't have to feeding people in need and homeless folks in the hopes that I would find that thing.
0: So Orlando, you you're playing football with the Toronto Argonauts, you're hitting people, you're having fun, you do that for a few years. Another team wants to sign you the the Hamilton Tiger Cats. You're super excited. You sign a contract and uh, you decide, I'm going to go out and celebrate with my friends. And then in an instant, your life changed. We're going to come back and hear from Orlando after this break. What happened? Hey, everyone. If you've listened to season one of Black and White you know that my amazing guests and I have often discussed the wealth gap issue that persists between the BIPOC and non-BIPOC communities. Disadvantage of opportunity caused in part by wealth inequalities is something I know firsthand as a black man who started out in life from challenging circumstances. More than 10 years ago, I turned to Andrew Shepard and his team at Flatiron Wealth Management to help me set a course for a better financial future for my family by setting tangible financial goals and putting place informed investment strategies. At that time, Andrew and his team reviewed my needs, which included long-term planning for the eventual retirement I envisioned, and making sure we had a safety net in place in case things went wrong along the way. Most importantly, Andrew heard me when I told him that priority number one was to secure a better future for my kids, one which would see them have as many opportunities as possible. Through a collaborative process, the Flatiron team recommended a strategy for my kids, which included a savings plan, partly anchored in a governmental educational savings program, combined with a participatory insurance product that would allow my kids to have millions of dollars of life insurance coverage, paid for in 20 years at the lowest cost possible. Surprising to me, this plan would also enable my kids to borrow from the insurance policy to pay for college, to put a down payment on a house, or to invest in a business. Key foundational pillars to building generational wealth. It's truly been an amazing 10 years with Flatiron. I've seen the direct benefit of their financial management services. Positive forward momentum realized year after year. If you're in need of solid financial management advisory services, give Andrew and his team at Flatiron a call. You'll be happy you did. Welcome back to Black and White. I'm Stephen Dorsey, your host. I'm chatting, having an amazing conversation with Orlando Bowen. So, Orlando, we left off you're just signed a new contract with the hamilton tiger cats and the canadian football league you're excited for yourself you're excited for your family you're excited for your community you say i'm gonna go meet my friends and celebrate you get in your car you show up to meet your friends you step out of your car and then what happens
1: mm-hmm. so this was at a time where i had just played three seasons with the argos i played one season with the Thai Cats. they offered me a contract extension I signed that extension and we're about to celebrate. But there are other things that are happening in my life. Stephen, let me give you a little bit of the backdrop. So my wife and I had one son at the time, Dante, and and, uh, Sky uh, was pregnant with our second. Um, So, you know, one of the reasons why I uh, signed with Hamilton was so that I could be there as a dad, because that was important to me. And I talked earlier about you know, my dad and, and his dad and, and their journey and being a father that was present was really important to me. Uh, my grandfather wasn't around for my dad. And, and when I was growing up, my, growing up, my dad had multiple jobs, so he was a provider, um, but couldn't physically be present because of that provision and the efforts towards that provision. So for me, the whole goal was if I could be a a dad that's present, like that would be such a gift. So this is happening in the background while I sign this contract extension and get ready to go out and celebrate. And I dream of the day that our son Dante and our unborn child would be in the stands and be able to watch and be proud and uh, you know, just connected that way. So, absolutely. I, so I, I'm waiting outside of my vehicle. I see two guys walking towards me, and and one guy says, "Hey, you have any drugs?" And I was on the phone at the time. I said, "Hold on one sec." Excuse me? No. Went back to my phone call. The guys walked past my vehicle, but one guy stopped at the at the rear of my vehicle. The other gentleman kept walking. The guy that stopped says, "Are you sure? You sure you don't have anything?" And I. I thought that was an odd question because they asked me if I had drugs. I was pretty unequivocal in my response. So I was kind of surprised that they would ask if I'm sure because I didn't, there was no reason for you to ask if I'm sure, I, you know, in terms of how I responded. Um, but then as I was processing that, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, when I first saw these guys, I saw two of them, and I'm only seeing one now. And I turned my head and in my peripheral, I saw the other gentleman standing in my blind spot. So I took a step back so I could see them both at the same time. I said, what's going on? I put the phone on top of the car, put it on speaker. I said, what's going on? And, um, you know, uh, to make a long story short, these guys were, they were both armed with guns. And uh, one of them threatened to shoot me in the head and they grabbed me and, and they were trying to wrestle me down to the ground. And they started to beat me and beat me and beat me onto the skin on my head split. I remember being face down on the pavement and I could feel the blood running from my face and the brokenness in my body. And all I could think was, God, don't let me die like this. Like All the things that I thought about being able to do as a dad, I couldn't believe that none of those things were going to happen and that I was going to die here like this. It was just so surreal. So I just remember saying, God, not like this. You know, the assault ended up resulting in a severe concussion. Um, the concussion prevented me from being able to pass my physicals. I couldn't even stand without, like, leaning against something that was stable. Well, I, I
0: saw the photos, Orlando. Yeah. They, they beat you to an inch of your depth. Yeah,
1: yeah. And and the bigger challenge even that, that I felt was even bigger than the fact that I couldn't play football and take care of my family that way was the fact that it assault happened at the hands of two corrupt, undercover police officers who worked for the police force that I was their spokesperson. I was their face in the community. Uh, crazy. And um, I worked with, and and still I'm connected to so many amazing officers who, they risk life in them every day. A lot of them, they you know, it's all about service, it's about community, and at the end of the day, they just want to make it home to their families. Um, so I knew that someone was going to stand up and say, hey, man, no, this you know, this isn't right. I knew that that was going to be the case un- until, you know, no one did because they, they were afraid. Um,
0: now, on top of the assault by two undercover yeah. police officers, now there's drugs involved yeah. in here. Yeah,
1: they, they took me to the police station after the assault and then in an effort to cover it up because they had to figure, they had to position a story in such a way that would make sense, right? And I remember you know, an officer walking past my cell and stopping and looking in and saying, Orlando? And then kept walking. And then I heard the officer say, we were just at a training with him not too long ago. And you like, you could hear the disbelief in, in their voice. And trust me, there was disbelief in my perspective too. I, um, I can
0: it, only imagine.
1: I honestly, I I had never felt so dehumanized than than i felt throughout that experience especially that like beginning on that night and just the way that they folks would look at me and, and and talk to me and you know just the anger the hatred it was it was pretty surreal and very like you could feel it it was palpable um,
0: Especially from when you're, you're seemingly a leader and you're, you're brothers in arms. Essentially, in an instant, they, they've forsaken you, really.
1: That's how it felt. I think one of the challenges for me was that by virtue of working with the police in the first place, I was taking heat from folks in the Black community saying, why are you <laughs> working with them? You know how they treat us. And I, I would always say, but it could be better. And I'm trying to do my part to move us towards what's possible. Uh, there's no guarantees, but I know that if I don't do anything, I don't feel comfortable sitting back and saying it should be better and not do anything about it. So this was my doing something about it. Yeah. And I was taking heat for doing something about it. And then when the assault happened, and they, in their minds, I guess they had to figure out how they were going to cover it up, and they went back to the, my car while holding me in the jail cell. No phone calls, no medical attention. They went back and they planted drugs by my car that was that was beyond like anything that i would have imagined that that would happen and it's it's not that we hadn't been around young people and others who had had interactions with police that were we wouldn't be proud of um or and that the police wouldn't be proud of if it was brought to light i think the thing that that i was challenged by the most was the extent to which they were willing to go to cover it up when all this time, like the whole message that we were bringing to schools, because I was going to schools with police officers and we say, you got to stand up for the right thing, even if it means standing by yourself, even if it's hard, even if you, people look at you like an outcast. So I'm like, okay, that's what's happening right now. So if we're not willing to lead by example in these things that we're preaching, it's better we don't say anything at all because it, it does more damage to say one thing and do something else than it does to just you know pretend that what we're saying isn't of, of importance or of value to us.
0: One of the things that I found in talking to many, many people, especially over the last couple of years, about systemic racism and overt racism is i've shared my own stories and experiences and people go, especially white people going what are you talking about that couldn't have happened right that as you're telling your story i can still see the the intensity in your face orlando as you're telling the story And, you know, I think for many, many people, those kinds of stories are what you saw on, you know, I'll date myself, Hill Street Blues and on on TV and films that, that depict Black people being arrested or or shot or drugs planted you know it's like out of a movie but this is real life life, right this is like this is your real life you're a a father of 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 one and a half trying to do good in your community you're a professional football player you're working towards reconciliation to bring two communities together and now you're in a cell you're beaten up you know your career is over and now you could be going to jail, right. to the penitentiary, for many, many years. So then what happens?
1: I kept asking for a phone call, and they kept denying me my phone call. And then they finally came to my cell and opened it up. And I had heard them releasing people, so I thought they were going to release me. So actually, before they opened my cell up, I, I said to an officer that was passing by, I said, when do I get to go home? I heard, you know, these folks next in the next cell over or getting released. What a, when do I get to go home? And they're like, home. You're not going home. You have a bail hearing. So I'm thinking, of, why would I have a bail hearing? This was before, you know, I knew anything about any drugs in terms of what they were a- alleging.
0: You have no idea. No
1: idea. No clue. So I'm like, why Why would I have a bail hearing? I'm so confused right now. Is, this is what I'm, in my mind, I'm like, wow, why would I have a bail hearing? Well, what, what would I need a bail for? And the officer says, don't you know what you've been charged with? You've been charged with assaulting a police officer, two counts and possession of a controlled substance. And I don't know what my face looked like at the time, but I was like, what are you talking about? I'm thinking yeah, they have to have me confused with somebody. And the officer just looked at me and said, you know what you look like, man? You look like a piece of S-H-I-T, you a-hole. And, and I'm subdued in how I'm saying it, he was not. I'm very calculated in diminishing the anger and fire which came from that moment. It was a very intense moment, you know, looking at me and saying that, and um, I was just, I thought, well, he must have me mixed up. Maybe he's got the cells mixed up because that can't be the truth. Until they opened my cell up and they handcuffed me to three other guys to take us to the courthouse. That's when I knew it was for real. And, um, wow. you know, having to sit in the courtroom and um, officers taking the oath to tell the truth and saying things like, you know, your honor, he's six foot two and he's actually trained to hurt people. I've never been in such fear for my life. I'm thinking, how could you possibly say that? Um So anyhow, I was released on bail and then we had to seek legal representation. The pictures you would have seen of my face were taken from outside of the hospital the morning after the assault. Even that journey, going home and wondering, will our 18 month old son recognize me? You know, that was like, what if he doesn't even know who I am because of what my face looks like, right? And I remember stepping into the house and my mother-in-law was there and and like people were crying when they saw my face and I I kind of, you know, stooped down and I called Dante and he came to me but then he kept like touching my face. He was almost like like I recognized the voice but this, you know, he kept doing this to my face. And um, you know, that that was a moment that I will, you know, always remember also. Then we had to find legal representation. And that was a stressful, stressful time for us. The first uh, set of lawyers we went to and having to share what happened was a traumatic experience in and of itself, right? I can imagine, to, yeah. To, to a stranger, to someone we have no connection to. I remember the first set of lawyers, you know, saying after I poured out and I had like a physiological response, I would get the chills, sweat. Um, sometimes I would be physically sick and i remember the the lawyers looking at us and saying, "well, we don't want you to take this the wrong way, but um given that you're uh like you're a black man in our professional experience, uh we're going to recommend that you plead guilty to a lesser charge." and i remember looking at my wife saying like maybe they didn't hear what i said because there is no possible way that someone could have been listening to what i said and would recommend me pleading guilty for something i didn't do i didn't do anything and um they said it's it's not personal it's just in our experience and we've been doing this for a long time
0: this is the craziness of it right because we know that this happens all the time First, you've been assaulted, you've been wrongly accused, that they've planted drugs, now you're fighting for your liberty, really, and now the legal counsel is saying to you, you basically need to plead guilty, and possibly, I don't know, but, you know, you would be facing multiple years in jail with a criminal record uh, away from your young family, and your life would be ruined.
1: Yeah. Right. That, and that is their recommendation based on their professional experience.
0: You finally found some representation yeah. of people that believed you were going to support you. Yeah. You get the court, you're fighting for your life, essentially. Yeah. And then what happens?
1: During the, the case, you know, what some would consider a strange turn of events. You know, I, I kept, I kept praying for two things. One, um, Hearing the officer take the oath and then lie and say stuff like, you know, he was hitting me in my face. So, you know, I remember under cross-examination, my attorney said, so you said Orlando's a big guy, right? You referenced that he's 6'2", 235 pounds, and he's trained to hurt people. You also said that he sucker punched you in your face. Yes, that's correct. And there were no marks on your face. There's nothing from this big, powerful man that sucker punched you, and there's no mark on your face at all. And um, you know, I just remember even when, when when my lawyer said, "So where exactly did he sucker punch you?" And he said, "In this area, <laughs> right?" So there are a number of the whole of face. The whole face. Just the whole thing. The whole face. Yes. So I remember just thinking, like, why are we here? Like, why Why do we have to go through all this when they know the truth? Yeah. So anyhow, uh, while we we're journeying through that situation, you know, I remember uh, like uh, this deep sorrow came over me as I was looking at one of the officers lie on the stand. And uh, my grandmother used to always say that hurt people when they don't know what to do with their pain, they hurt other people. And what I felt was, man, what? what kind of pain must he have been through? Like, what could bring you to a point where you could be doing what he's doing right now? And I couldn't imagine. So I just felt so sorry for him. And I decided to pray for him. That was the first thing I was praying for, for him to get help, because I was like, he's broken, man, he needs help. And then the second thing I was praying for was, and I know people do different things when they're seeking energy from a higher power. Um, You know, I'm, I'm not suggesting anything. I'm just saying what our family does. So the second thing I was praying for was for the truth to come out. And um, what happened while I was on trial was the arresting officer in my case was himself arrested uh, for trafficking cocaine. And um, he was arrested and charged and eventually convicted and sentenced to go to prison for five years and eight months. Uh, During that time, I was acquitted of all charges. You know, when he was sentenced, people wanted to celebrate. You know, they were like, man, he, they almost killed you. They destroyed your career. They almost broke your family apart. Let's celebrate. And I, was, I said, I, I can't. I can't celebrate someone else's pain, man. He's a dad. He's a father, just like I am. I'm not going to celebrate someone's pain. But for me, what I will do with that energy is use it to pour into other people, to help them realize that the things that happen to them don't have to define what they can do, who they can become. Um, and I wrote a letter of forgiveness to the officers where, you know, I thanked them for the perspective that I gained through the process and let them, I wanted them to know that we're on the same team. You know, it, it may sound strange, but forgive them 100% and uh, love them. 99%, I'm still working on that <laughs> so.
0: Well, I tell you, Orlando, your fortitude, your resilience, The level of forgiveness that you found in your heart really is the fuel that powers you and that has led you to become this transformative figure. And part of that transformation is what you've dedicated your life to, something that could have really destroyed you, you turned it into an amazing positive. So I want to talk a little bit about that, all the amazing work that you do in the community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the organizations, foundations that you formed in 2005, One Voice, One Team, which is really about focusing on youth. So maybe tell us about how that got started and why you decided that that was the way that you could you know, initially start giving back. It's it's become a great success. Uh, So tell us a little bit about how that got started and where it's at today.
1: Yeah, so I was still on trial at the time. And one of the things that I thought about was, uh, you know, at the time of my assault, you know, we were working with like newcomer families, refugee youth, um, kids who aren't necessarily looked at as having a wealth of potential and a wealth of opportunity. Those are the folks we were working with. So when I was assaulted and we were journeying through that whole process, all I could think or one of the things I thought about was, what if this was one of them? What if this was them journeying through this and then having to go to their parents and asking to find money for legal representation? anywhere from 300 to, you know, $650, $700 an hour. Like, where would that support come from? What would the possibilities be that they could, you know, raise that support? What they don't have a track record, like I had a track record of service and contribution and things that I was doing in the community. For so, so for some people, the fact that I was being charged with this was kind of oxymoronic. They were like, this doesn't make any sense. Like my teammates were like, this is crazy. Let I, I will go testify myself, right? There were a lot of folks that were, you know, um, that I thought about. Uh, what chance would they have? And I realized, and my wife, we re-realized as a family that this was bigger than us. Like our journey through this was bigger than us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we understood that there were systems that exist where, and this wasn't, you know, um, new but our journey through it would be significant in terms of giving hope to people who would feel like they shouldn't have any. So we had to get through it. So that was, um, part of it for us. And then, you know, one of the things I I said in the letter was, well, what will you tell your kids? What will I say to my kids? We're supposed to be working together to make things better. What do you? How are you going to justify this? How do you sleep? How do you lay your head down at night and not think about the consequences of this? For us, we're, the, the thought was, yeah, we, we'll go in and we'll engage. Again, I was doing racial sensitivity training for police officers at the time and a number of other things with, with, with adults. And I was also working with youth and we thought the best way for us to shift what was possible as well as the narrative, will be for us to start with young people. Amazing. Young people who perhaps weren't as locked in, um, as jaded, or as set in their ways, who, who might still be able to see the humanity in people um, and then move towards honoring and celebrating that humanity.
0: And so what do you, and so what do you bring to these children? What are the, what are some of the programs you've built around that? I mean, literally you've had thousands and thousands and thousands of kids. I was, I I did a community program uh, in the late nineties with a a friend of mine who was also a professional football player, Mo Elowinibi. Oh, Mo. Yeah. Big Mo. Yeah, yeah. And we went, we're high school friends. He played, he won a Super Bowl with the Redskins, ended up uh, with the BC Lions and, and uh, we did a community program with the Boys and Girls Club. So this was like late 90s. So he's told me since then, we, we focus on these young kids coming from underprivileged uh, neighborhoods. And he says he's walked down the street, you know, and someone that's 30 years old comes by and says, I was in the mo zone.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: You made me feel special. You made me feel important. You let me go walk on the field. You you recognize me. You talk to me. And uh, so powerful. Yeah. So I'm sure now you've got, you've had thousands. So, so tell me some of the things that you do for, for these youth.
1: Yeah. So we, it starts off engaging them through things like assemblies at their schools and school-wide assemblies, and then workshops and summer camps where we not only pour into young people that are seven to 13 years of age, but we hire high school youth that have sat in our programs or participated in our, in our programs to do the same high school and college university youth um, to pour into other youth so that. As they learn, they teach, which increases the depth of their the understanding of the content. Exactly. As well as making it personalized for them and personal to them. Uh, so we also take young people out into the community and we serve. We do some of the things that, that I talked about earlier. We've built houses with habitat. We plant trees, we feed homeless. You know, we've been doing that across really across Canada. We've served in every province thus far, not the territories yet. Um, We've done work on, you know, First Nations Reserves. Those are our brothers and sisters also um, that are journeying through all types of oppressive situations. And we've been doing that. At at this point, we are, um, we're expanding. We just, uh, we just launched One Voice, One Team Manitoba. Uh, One of our staff members moved
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you kindly. Moved this family out there and they've kicked things off. We're hiring staff. We ran summer camp out there last year, virtually. We're going to be in person this year. We've also been, we're working with Northern Illinois University, my alma mater, to look at um, expanding to support uh, young people in, drum roll please, inner city Chicago. So we're going back to that (laughs) um, and, and looking at supporting young people there. We also ran a program in Jamaica amazing uh, for the first time this spring virtually and are looking at building on that also and we've also been invited to ireland and northern ireland to deliver programming um you know uh in march of 2023 so there's a lot worldwide worldwide yeah, I mean, we're doing what we can with what we have Stephen. you know you know the need is significant
0: amazing i think what a great program what a great program you and i are kind of like Glass half full type people. And I know we're, so usually I ask people, are they hopeful? But I know that you're hopeful. But, you know, what do you, what do you, what does hope look like for you going forward for a society?
1: Yeah. I mean, hope for me is that the conversations continue to happen um, and for it to move from being conversations to actions where people demonstrate a willingness to be vulnerable, to be authentic. Well, it starts with the curating of those type of spaces and the protection of those type of spaces where people can feel or know that they can be open and authentic and honest, so that we could actually speak human being to human being versus speaking human being to avatar or avatar to avatar, or projecting an image of what we believe people want to see and saying things that we believe they need to hear or would like to hear. So so I'm hopeful that you know as we journey forward, the conversations are just like everyday conversations that we're able to check in with each other, we're able to make sure that others are being validated for their contributions, for their lived experiences, for their perspectives, and that everyone is seeing themselves as having a role as an ally and as a supporter. Uh, I I think we all have roles to play. Some are more comfortable than others doing different things, that's fine um just do what you can with what you have be open to learning and growing and as you learn and as you grow encourage others that are, that are along that same path and 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 be an example for those who are, who are perhaps sitting on the sidelines saying i don't know about this
0: and like the great john lewis says you know you can uh, say something do something
1: yeah absolutely
0: well orlando you turned what an amazing story you're an amazing person Uh, You turned really something, a tragedy into something super special, becoming a leader, a model for young people, a bridge builder for those wanting to better understand one of the obviously the systemic racism and inequality, uh, how to be better human beings. I think you're doing an amazing job. You truly turn lemons into lemonade, you know. And uh, so I want to thank you for for being uh, and having the conversation today. Blessings. Blessings
1: to you, Stephen. Keep up the amazing work, and keep on sharing and curating spaces for people to to share, so that we could all learn and we could all grow and and recognize that we've all got a you know our part to play as we journey. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to Black and White. If you've enjoyed today's conversations, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and give our show a nice rating while you're at it. A reminder that my book, Black and White, an intimate multicultural perspective on white advantage and the path to change is available online and in bookstores across the US and Canada. A friend sent me a photo the other day of Chelsea Handler smiling with my book in hand. Great to see that it's being widely read. Black and White is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks for engineer Ian Douglas, producer and sound designer extraordinaire Noah Faust and executive producers Gerardo Orlando and my good friend David Allen Moss. I'm Stephen Dorsey reminding all of us that we can be better, do better, so that eventually we can all live better together.